Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This podcast is sponsored by Small Farm University, the go-to resource for gardeners, homesteaders, and farmers around the world. Small Farm University delivers classes online and on demand with training on how to grow crops and how to grow a profitable farm business that serves you, your family, and your community well. Delivered by real farmers with hands-on experience and expertise, it's unique in its approach using the RIPED method for growing and building a farm or farm business. SFU membership includes access to a private Facebook group and monthly live Q&A sessions where you can get your questions answered and find the support you need. To learn more, visit growingfarmers.com today. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today, I have a special guest, Chris Jones, who has recently served as a research engineer at the University of Iowa. He holds a PhD in analytical chemistry from Montana State University and a BA in chemistry and biology from Simpson College. He's been a prominent voice for the quality of the water in Iowa for many years. He shares those thoughts and critiques through his blog, which will be released as a book entitled The Swine Republic on May 19th. 19th. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Okay, thanks. Thanks for the inv- invitation. Happy to be here. Yeah. So give us a little bit of background here. You know, what uh, what caused you to want to go into, um, you know, I don't know, water quality, research, uh, what, what what drove you that, that direction in your career? Well, so, you know, I was interested in environmental um, topics and and environmental uh, studies back when I was even in high school. But at that time, there was no such thing, no such thing as an environmental science major Mm. or an environmental studies major. And so um, really, if you were interested in that, um, analytical chemistry was one of the things that you did. And so at that time, there was a lot of focus on the detection of environmental contaminants in the environment including uh, like uh, the chemicals responsible for uh, the ozone depletion. And then, you know, those were the days of DDT and uh, the other uh, chlorinated uh, pesticides were still being used. And so analytical chemistry was where you went if you're interested in those topics. And so my uh, graduate school advisor was actually an atmospheric chemist and was interested in the the ozone uh, depletion processes at the time. And so that's what I studied in graduate school. And after that, I had more of an interest in water. And of course, um, here in Iowa, you know, we have this nexus, right, of agriculture and water and um, trying to get the environmental outcomes that we want with water quality in this intensely farmed landscape. Because mm-hmm. Iowa has kind of, well, I think its reputation is food. Well, at least agricultural production, because most of what you produce out there is corn and not, and that's not necessarily human food. So we produce a lot of starch and a lot of um, plant protein. And then some of that is fed to animals to produce um, protein, of course, mainly for the world's um, wealthy people. And then, you know, a lot of the starch goes to produce uh, fuel ethanol. And so mm-hmm. in any one year, about 60% of our corn goes to produce fuel ethanol. Might wow. vary, uh, you know, somewhere between 45 and 60% in 
Well, that's an enormous amount of corn. Oh, yeah. And about uh, 20% of the state's area is used just to produce corn for fuel ethanol. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're not putting bread on the table. We're not putting uh, vegetables on the table. We do put some some uh, pork chops and uh, beef and then also eggs. We're also the, the top egg producing state. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, the feeding the world thing is uh, probably doesn't apply to Iowa very well. Yeah, um, you do a lot of pork and swine out there too. And the only reason I know is I was out there for a conference and I forget, we flew into Des Moines and then we went north to the university town. Ames, yeah, Iowa Ames. State University. Yes. That's, not, yeah. that's not where I'm at. I'm at the University of Iowa. But yes, Ames is a land-grant institution, and that's where the College of Agriculture is. Yeah, and the only thing we could smell when we came into town was <laughs> hog manure. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, talk about your career. So over your years there, what has happened to the water quality of the places that you've been researching? Well, the... You know, we have to say that some things have improved in Iowa. And so okay. um, we did see a reduction in soil erosion after the 1985 Farm Bill. And of course, that had conservation compliance, uh, those rules uh, associated with conservation compliance. And it required farmers that were farming highly erodible land to adopt a soil conservation plan to reduce soil erosion. And so we do know that the clarity of our streams did improve in the ten, first 10 years or so after the 1985 Farm Bill. Mm. But our main problem here is nutrient pollution and the mm -hmm. nutrients being nitrogen and phosphorus. We very likely did have some reductions in phosphorus that were associated with, with reduced soil erosion. But in the last 20 years or so, we still see phosphorus um, levels in our streams increasing. And then, you know, nitrogen is just, we really have no handle on uh, nitrogen loss. And we see uh, nitrogen increasing very substantially over the last 25 years. And so there might be a lot of reasons for that. One is much of our state is drained with drainage tile. And so mm. over 2 million miles of tile here. Uh, we know the tile is the primary delivery mechanism for nitrate from farm mm -hmm. feeders to the stream network. Iowa is getting wetter. And so the more um, rain that we get, the more nitrogen we're gonna lose. And then of course, we've had a very uh, large expansion of livestock industry, especially hogs. And mm -hmm. so we've doubled our hog population to about 25 million now over the last 20 years. And so all these things have sort of combined to make uh, nitrogen loss increase quite substantially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at an article you did, a blog you did about wishing accomplished in NDM um, in April 5th of this year, talking about the Clean Water Act, talking about total maximum daily load, showing like a nitrate parts per million um, and just kind of the challenges there, uh, I think 47 days above that. Um, and even though like a lot of, I, mean, I think I would say most of what's out there in Iowa now is probably no till, even that is still not causing complete reduction. 
Well, I think really we only have about 20% of our land in no-till. And so, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, um, and that, you should remember that that's not never-till. Correct, so correct. Quite yeah, often, reduced till. Yeah. But we quite often uh, have tillage on corn and then in the soybean year following, uh, the, they will not till for the soybean year. So, yeah, our no-till is only about 20%. So we are not... We are not a no-till state. Um, and so a lot of our soils here are what we call cold soils, especially in uh, the north central part of the state, uh, the uh, Des Moines lobe area. And so they're slow to warm up in the spring, high clay content, they retain moisture. And so, you know, our farmers want to get corn planted, you know, April 15th mm -hmm. a lot of times. And so to get that done, you know, that soil's got to be warmed up. It's got to be dried out. And so that requires tillage. And so we have some areas of the state where no-till is more common than other areas. Uh, that might be the hillier areas of far western Iowa and then northeast Iowa. But most of our best land is tilled. Mm -hmm. Well, because part of that is trying to warm that soil. You said, as you said, trying to warm that soil up. And that's the fastest way to do it, unfortunately. Yeah. And so, you know, our soils are very black here and, you know, you get that exposed to the sunshine, sunshine and, and they'll warm it up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so talk us through, um, you know, all right. So we, we talked about, we got nitrates in the water, but what does that cause? I'm sure a lot of people say, okay, so what's the big deal with that? So when that, that nitrogen gets in the water, what does it do? So yes, indeed, a lot of people do say, what's a big deal? And so um, nitrate is a regulated drinking water contaminant. When the Safe Drinking Water Act was passed in 1974, nitrate was one of the first 20 or so parameters that were regulated. The limit was set at 10 parts per million as nitrogen, and that was intended to be protective of infants. And so infants that consume water, um, for example, uh, formula, baby formula prepared with tap water. When infants consume water above that, then they're vulnerable to what we call blue baby syndrome. And their body does not carry uh, oxygenated hemoglobin very well mm. when they are consuming high nitrate water. And so that was 1974 when the standard was set. But since that time, we see there's emerging evidence that consuming high nitrate water over the span of a lifetime can be um, harmful to adults too. And this is at levels far less than 10. Mm. So we see some uh, published studies from Wisconsin and also from the EU that shows increased risk of bladder cancer and colorectal cancer and some other things uh, that result from drinking high nitrate water over the course of a lifetime. And so the standard was set to be protective of infants, but we know that it's probably not good to drink high nitrate water your entire life. Mm -hmm. We have about 7,000 private wells here in Iowa that have been contaminated with nitrate above the 10 milligram per liter limit. We have about 60 of our community water supplies that have to remove nitrate. And about 25% of the state's population drinks water that's been treated for nitrate removal. And so that is a big issue here for sure. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, also the phosphorus—you uh, said phosphorus is is a problem too. So we do have elevated phosphorus, and you know we don't see phosphorus discussed as much here as you know the Lake Erie Basin. <clears throat> and phosphorus, uh, the effects uh, are more uh, connected to the algae blooms mm-hmm. in both lakes and rivers, and so mm-hmm. the degradation of these bodies of water for recreation. Now, phosphorus can have um, effects for drinking water safety too, because as we see in Toledo, Ohio, the phosphorus causes these big blue-green algae blooms. Um, When they die and decompose, their cells release these toxins that um, are toxic to human beings, uh, both via contact and in their drinking water. But in Iowa, um, the health issues are mainly related to nitrogen and the phosphorus is more of an aesthetic um, mm. thing with our water resources. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So um, over your years of working, what was kind of your role? Was your role monitoring? Was your role trying to help people lower it? So most of my career has been spent Uh, studying the hydrology, contaminant hydrology from um, these agricultural landscapes. And so that includes monitoring both uh, the chemistry of the water and then also the hydrology. I've done some work with farmers. I used to work for Iowa Soybean Association. Mm -hmm. And and so I did interact with farmers, some there and some here at the University of Iowa, but that has not been the main thrust of my job. Gotcha. Um, and then, so you were writing this on a blog, I think. So tell us a little bit about, like, you're no longer working with the university. Can I just share that story a bit? So when I came here in 2015, they invited uh, me to set up a website, as they do with all researchers. And so I did that. And in my previous jobs, I had done a fair amount of writing and felt I, you know, had been an adequate writer. And so when I had got my webpage set up, I um, including the page there where I posted essays. And early on, I wrote a few essays for general audiences about the science uh, associated with water quality in Iowa. And, you know, in those first few years, not very many people read those at all. And then I wrote one maybe in 2018 or early 2019 that I called This Is What Happened. And mm-hmm. This was sort of a history of how agriculture had evolved here in Iowa over the last century and a half and how that was manifested in the water that we see here in the present day. And so that one got was read quite a, by quite a few people. And so after that, I was sort of inspired to write more frequently. Mm. And as I did write over the years, um, you know, I would say the essays changed a little bit and um, they did get more, um, I guess, uh, pointed, I guess would be uh-huh, more uh-huh, uh-huh. about, you know, the, our lack of progress on these issues. And then finally, um, here a month and a half ago, a couple of people in the legislature sort of threatened the department that I work in that, you know, they needed to, you know, stop this essay writing that I was doing and, or risk funding us for some programs. And so 
at that time, I just decided, look, I, I didn't want to put people at risk here uh, with their jobs. And, um, you know, I had been considering retiring in about a year or so, or maybe two years, but uh, I just decided, well, maybe this was the time to go that, mm. you know, people just were getting too upset about these things. And I thought maybe, maybe now is the time to stop. Yeah. So I, yeah, there's an article in the Gazette that I've got pulled up here and you've got Senator Dan Zumbach and Tom Shipley. So if listeners, if those are your uh, senators, give them a call and express your displeasure that they are pretty much what I guess I would like to say is they are trying to hide the dirty truth about agriculture in Iowa. And again, it's not like we're anti-farm or anything like that, but we're anti um, people getting exposed to um, nitrates. And so if you read my stuff, you know, I say all the time, you can't just lay this on the doorstep of the farmer. Correct. Um, you know, the reason we have the condition that we do is because, you know, there's a lot of drivers here and, you know, I'm in academia, right? And I uh -huh. say all the time, we are part of the problem. We cannot ignore, um, you know, how we are complicit or maybe even cooperating with a lot of what's going on here. And so... You don't get the condition that we have here without the participation and complicity of lots of people. And so that includes academia. It includes agribusness. It includes the, the, the NGOs. And yes, of course, it includes the farmers, too. They're the practitioners of agriculture. But, you know, I, I say that... Um, you know, the problem isn't that farmers are evil. It's a pro the problem is they're human beings. And so they're yeah. making decisions that many of us would make uh, given the same set of circumstances. And so we really have to look at it all here if we're going to solve this. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Small Farm University, the go-to resource for gardeners, homesteaders, and farmers around the world. Small Farm University delivers classes online and on demand with training on how to grow crops and how to grow a profitable farm business that serves you, your family, and your community well. Applying what you learn in SFU could save you thousands of hours and thousands of dollars. And it can save you the agony of costly mistakes some make just because they don't know what they don't know. Delivered by real farmers with hands-on experience and expertise, it is unique in its approach, using the ripened method for growing and building a farm or farm business. Here are a few highlights of what SFU has to offer in its growing library of resources. Find your perfect farm property. Whether you are renting or purchasing, this course guides you through vetting the farm property and determining how or if it suits your business needs. We give you the secret sauce for what makes a profitable farm property and help save you thousands of dollars. Start your farm intensive. Fleshing out your farm idea, craft your one-page business plan, and discover the right funding options for your business. Use our business templates, worksheets, and calculators to figure out the numbers as you go. Farmer's Market Success System. Learn how to attract and convert customers by building an unstoppable marketing and business system for your farmer's markets. Production Mastery Series. Learn all about growing, harvesting, and drying greens. Learn about tunnel building and take special classes such as brand new and very popular Elderberry Masterclass. We include real-life examples and calculators for figuring out fertility rates, how much money you are actually making, and where your profit is coming from. 
business systems and marketing courses. Learn about the SFU Ripen formula for success, develop your marketing plan, and join in for behind the scenes tours of real farm businesses. Learn the systems you need to run your business well and how to hire a team to help you. And learn how you can add value to what you produce to generate even more income with minimal additional time and expense. In addition, members of SFU get access to the Growing Farmer Summits on demand with over 100 sessions of targeted areas of interest to farmers. These annual online events have attracted over 100,000 people from around the world, and they are included in your SFU membership as a bonus. SFU membership includes access to a private member group, monthly group Q&A sessions, and even one-on-one coaching sessions where you can get your questions answered and find the support you need. To learn more, visit growingfarmers.com today. We've got a major issue with, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats, you know, because Democrats like to talk a good game, but unfortunately, as this article says, they're way too timid still times to actually push the problem out there. Um, and then the Republicans are beholden to their donor base, which is the barons, the agribusinesses, and even the Farm Bureau. So you have some definitely some um, blame to lay at the, the feet of the Farm Bureau. So water quality polls very, very well here in Iowa, right? People mm. want it. Yeah. They want it to be better. But yet one of the issues, um, and so I say all the time, I'm not partisan about this. Democrats will not run on the issue. Yeah. And they'll talk a good game, but, um, you know, they don't run on it. And so there's lots of uh, places that uh, Democrats fear to tread here. Mm-hmm. So one of them is ethanol, right? And, oh, yeah. Well, remind me, but isn't ethanol a net loss of energy? Well, uh, you know, I don't. <laughs> it's worse than what the industry would have you believe. I think the calculations show that it does it is a net gain in energy, but here's the thing. It's not a net gain or it's not a net benefit in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And so when we look at all the accompanying pollution that comes with ethanol production, water quality, habitat loss, um, you know, the pesticides and, and so forth. Uh, there's lots of other environmental outcomes, yeah. corn production. And so, the fact that we don't get the greenhouse gas uh, benefit then calls into question, you know, is this uh, helping the common good? And I would say, no, it is not. And if it's not contributing to the common good, then why are we doing it? Because obviously this corn production is indemnified by the taxpayer through the crop insurance programs and other things. And so, Really, we need to examine what we're doing with fuel ethanol. We really, yeah. well, there's I'm, I just pulled it up, and there's there's articles on both sides. There's there's you know definitely Department of Energy um, articles down to Cornell University, the Stanford University, Wired magazine. So there's all sorts of aspects of does it, but I think you're right. Even if it does produce a net energy gain, the net overall ecological and um, sociological, I would even say, uh, is negative. So the paper that's gotten a lot of uh, mileage here the last couple of years is um, from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Tyler Lark and some others are the authors in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences that 
shows greenhouse gas emissions actually are increased 24% through ethanol, corn ethanol production. And so that's um, sort of the latest um, conclusion on that. And, you know, it's just does not make sense here when we think about the demand for liquid fuels is declining. Mm-hmm. Ethanol is going to die. <laughs> we know that. Yeah. It's going to die. The question is, is it going to die in five years or 30 years? And so all the people here in agriculture are doing their darndest to make it 30 years and not five years. And so we really need to imagine what all these acres are going to look like once ethanol is gone. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, there's definitely other crops that could be grown. Um, and I'm not obviously the one with the solutions for that, but I would say there, there's plenty of things that we, there we, we could be growing. It may not be quite as profitable as corn, but if you get, remove the billions of dollars of subsidies, then corn looks way less attractive than it once did. Um, That's exactly right. I mean, we make it profitable. We guarantee a market for it. Yeah. And so land here, the price of land has increased in lockstep with the amount of ethanol that the country has used. And so we've created a lot of land wealth here mm-hmm. yeah, through, through the renewable fuel standard. And of course, people are reluctant to see that uh, erode away, right? And because land is so expensive here, it's had a real perverse effect on the demographics of farming. And so the average age of the farmer here is now 60. Um, land is so expensive, young farmers can't break in. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, young people would like to farm and would like to do some imaginative things, right? Other than just corn, soybean, and CAFO, but they can't get in because they can't get the land and we can't mm-hmm. dislodge these old guys. The truth is that, you know, corn and soybean farm, farming isn't that hard anymore. Correct. Know? If yeah. you don't have livestock and you're, you know, working six or eight weeks out of the year, and consequently, these guys can farm until they're 85 years old. And, you know, we really need to change that framework. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, you've got this book coming out here, which comes out later this week um, from when we were actually recording this called The Swine Republic. So talk to us a little bit about what is uh, what's in the book. So the book is a collection of essays. Some of them have appeared uh, on my website. Then I write a more lengthy a beginning a chapter I call upstream and ending chapter I call downstream. The upstream chapter is sort of this history of how we got to this place, mm. how Iowa farming evolved and again, how that was manifested in our water quality. And then the, the ending chapter downstream are my ideas for, you know, which way we need to go to try to improve the situation here. And so, you know, a lot of my writing has been sort of polemical, I will admit, um, but I tried um, including some essays that are more sort of traditional environmental writing, I guess, if you will, uh, towards mm-hmm. the end. And so I'm an avid outdoorsman, and so I write a few essays uh, about those topics as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got some great um, kudos about this, Bill McKibben. Um yeah, Mary, I think Swander says, what turned a state with the most fertile land in the country and a network of bustling small cities and small family farms into a profits over people, corn, bean, CAFO system? Why can't we put our big toe in the water? So 
Um, I mean, that's right. You know, small yeah. town Iowa has died over the course of my life. You know, we used to be a state of thriving small towns and we're not anymore. And um, it's sad what's happened here. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I haven't been as much in Iowa, but I have definitely been in Nebraska and seen pretty much the same thing happen to Nebraska. Sure. Yep. Um, and you drive in these little towns and there's two gas pumps and uh, you know, you just, you just go pump the gas and put the money in the, <laughs> yeah. the box. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting just how it's become basically just one massive farm is kind of what it is. I mean, people, talk so we have 99 counties in Iowa and people uh talk seriously about someday we'll have one farmer per county and you know it's mm. it's not unbelievable right mm-hmm. uh to think about something like that and of course we have the um driverless tractors now and you know much of our land would be you know sort of tailor made and so you know it's pretty easy to imagine a guy sitting in his condo in Scottsdale, uh, planting corn with his laptop. And mm. those days are coming. There is no doubt. Well, and isn't the, and again, going back to the original organic movement, you know, talking, and again, whatever you feel about organic is what it is. Um, but, you know, we always say the best fertilizer is the footsteps of the farmer and you remove the farmer from the land and it's just machinery. I don't think there's anything good that comes from that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's part and parcel of the decline of rural America. And I I agree wholeheartedly with that. And to get change, we need to look at the frameworks that keep the status quo entrenched. And again, mm-hmm. we need young people. We need young people in farming. And so how do we get that? Well, we make policy that makes land available to them and the best way to do that is to get rid of the renewable fuel standard. Mm. And didn't that just kind of like there was a brief blip on the budget funding um, in Washington that that was going to start to go away? I don't think I don't know what happened to it. It sounds like it probably stayed just because of how entrenched um, the Midwest well, is red, probably. But so EPA sets the volumes. And so that's the big discussion point every year is what are the required volumes going to be that EPA um, sort of promulgates. And Mm. my understanding is the volumes are not increasing and maybe decreasing some, which again, um, begs the question, how long can it last? And so, you know, with all this land in production, we need to start thinking now about what we're going to do. You know, we have all this built infrastructure to support ethanol production. All this land, I think it's maybe about 8 million acres uh, in production for uh, corn for ethanol. You know, the state's leaders really need to start thinking, you know, mm-hmm. how is this going to shake out? And so even if it's 30 years, well, 30 years is not that far away. And yeah. so 30 years ago it was 1993. I remember that very quick, very clearly. And so, yeah. You know, we need to think about what are we going to do here after ethanol? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully they will um, talk about it in the farm bill. But unfortunately, with their history, I feel like it's probably not going to get the uh, discussion it needs to. Yeah. Well, Chris, anything else you want to say before we head out? 
Well, uh, no, you know, I, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at River Raccoon. Uh, then I also have a Substack, uh, riverraccoon.substack.com, where I'm posting my writing now. And, um, you know, we're just trying to make Iowa better. That's it. We, we want it to be better. And that's what I'm trying to do. Mm. Well, Chris, thank you again for coming on. It's great to hear your story. And um, I think one of my friends in Iowa actually posted the article. And so that's how I found out about your story and reached out because um, it's definitely something that needs shared. So again, thanks a lot. All right. Very good. Thanks for having me. Yes. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.